from the 24th chapter of the book of the Gospel of Luke. On the first day of the week, at early dawn, they came to the tomb bringing the spices which they had prepared, and they, rolled the, they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And it happened that while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling apparel, And as the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living one among the dead? I've been out to the cemetery uh, three times this past week. And every time I go out there to um, bury a body, to, to be in the place of comfort, I'm always drawn to uh, notice the stones, the headstones around. And I um, observe a couple of things, usually. It never fails that I do this. I always look at the date of birth and the date of death. And always the date of birth and the date of death are connected by a little line etched in stone. And in that silent city of the dead, we're all, they're all reduced to that one little line that separates one's birth from one's death. That is the summation of their life. And I've often thought how different we would live if we knew the date of death. I think we'd all live differently. And that's what made Jesus such an enigma to his uh, peers is because he knew the date of his death. And his purpose in coming was really a purpose to die. While we are born to take all that we can get out of life and live all that we can live as long as we can live, his was exactly the opposite experience. He came to put all that he could into life And he came to die. And the conclusion of the scripture is, is that before he was ever born, he knew the day of his death. He knew where, and he knew when, and he knew why. His life as a boy growing up, I'm sure, was like any other boy in Nazareth. Although he was a young maiden who frankly was conceived before she was married. And he had an earthly father by the name of Joseph who had nothing to do with his conception. And had you and I lived in a house near the carpenter's shop, we probably would have said from time to time in moments of privacy, that sure is a strange family that lives next door to us. I have my Bible open now to the first chapter of the book of Luke. And verse 37 really is the gives the, the theme of the Gospels. Verse 37 of chapter 1, it says, For nothing will be impossible with God. And the theme of the Gospels is that he, lived, he was born a miraculous birth, virgin birth. He lived a miraculous life. His life was characterized by miracles. He died a a miraculous death and was raised from the dead by the miracle of the power of God. 
But right from the start, his life was marked by death. I want you to look at verse 7 of chapter 2. It says that he, she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And that were, those cloths that she used in wrapping Je- this baby Jesus and lying him in that manger were much like the cloths by which, with which they wrapped dead bodies. So from the moment of his birth, there was the sign of his death. Um, Holman Hunt has that marvelous picture you've seen, that portrait you've seen of, of the manger, and there's this light of the star that, that's above the manger, and the silhouette of the star, as it shines, makes a cross, and this cross looms down as a shadow over the, over the manger, so that the uh, Holman Hunt is saying that from the moment of his birth, the cross extended out over his life. There is his childhood in chapter 2, verse 41. Now I'm just reminding us of things we already know uh, tonight, here, you know, briefly. Um, his parents uh, took him on a, on a journey to Jerusalem from Nazareth and lost him. For two days, they, 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 were, <laughs> they were without him. Can you imagine taking your child in this day to the city and, and losing him for two or three days? Forget it, man. He's gone for good. Suggestion of some, you know, a little hint for the wise. But when they finally went back to find him, to look for him, they, he was in the, in the temple confounding the scholars. There's some teachers tonight who have taught some bright children. Mine were among them. <laughs> some brilliant kids. But none of you has ever taught God. Can you imagine what this must have been like as this boy of 12 years old was asking these scholars, these geniuses, these theologians, questions that they had never thought through. And when they inquired about why he was there, he said, you know, didn't you know that I must be about my father's business? Chapter 4, verse 16, suddenly he's a man, he's grown, and we don't know what happened in those years between the age of 12 and the age of 30. He's a 30-year-old man now, but we can imagine what went on. We know that he was a religious young man. He went to the synagogue because, as it says in chapter 4, as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And he opened up Isaiah. He read a passage that relates to Messiah. This is what he read. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are downtrodden, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the scroll or rolled the scroll and he sat down. Now, in a synagogue, when the rabbi sat down, that meant he was ready to discuss what he had just read. Uh, didn't mean he was finished for the day. It meant that he was getting ready to, to exegete the passage, to explain the passage. And when he sat down, he told them these astounding words. He said, 
what you have just read, I've just read in your presence concerning Messiah. I'm the one those scriptures are talking about. And the murmur went up in the crowd, as you can imagine, you know, is this not the carpenter's son? Is this not Joseph's son? It wasn't Joseph's son, it was God's son. Now chapter 5, verse 15, his ministry begins to grow. Chapter 5, verse 15, news about him was spreading even farther. Great multitudes were gathering to hear him and to be healed of their sickness. But chapter 6, verse 8, begins this, the overture of the public opposition against him. He knew what they were thinking. And verse 11 says, They themselves were filled with rage and discussed together what they might do to Jesus. Now, it's not, any, not necessary really to continue this safari because you know the story as well as I, but I just want you to turn over to the 18th chapter and let me remind you of what went on as you're turning. He was brought to trial. We talked about that last time. Six trials, three trials for blasphemy, three trials for treason, and was, and was declared guilty, not found guilty, but declared guilty by both Jewish and Roman courts and was going to be executed. But verse 27 is a verse that sounds familiar. He said, The, the things impossible with men are possible with God. And it looks like as you come to the end of the story that, that this man who began his life in a, in a miraculous birth that nobody believed, still do, many still don't, and he lived like a normal boy in Nazareth, uh, began his ministry in his hometown, was rejected by his own people, um, performed miracles in the midst of, of everyone, and they questioned his motive and his source of power. And he was taken out and nailed on the cross like a common criminal, false charges having been brought on him. Can you imagine what that must have been like had you been one of the disciples watching at a distance? Dorothy Sayers has written a little thing about that. She says, the people were responsible for the crucifixion of Jesus, never accused him of being a bore. On the contrary, they fought him to be dynamic. It is for later generations to muster up that bland personality and surround Jesus with a ho-hum atmosphere. We have effectively trimmed the claws of the Lion of Judah and certified him meek and mild and recommend him as a fitting household pet. But for those who knew him did not know him as a milk and water person. They objected to him as a dangerous firebrand he deserved one thing, death. In fulfilling their wish, they carried out the precise plan of God. That's why He came and that's what He came to do. The disciples didn't grasp that. They saw Him as one who would build a kingdom. and They would be on the ground floor, charter members. They expected Him to live on, to change the whole empire so that Jerusalem and the Jews would come out on top. The promise to the Jews was that there would be a kingdom. David promised it and the prophets promised it. Now Messiah was here. Surely He wouldn't wind up dead, would He? 
That's exactly what happened. And so they took him down from the cross and put him in the tomb. But the news, the good news is, is that he no longer is in the tomb. He was raised from the dead. Now, we just, it's been a while since we've celebrated Easter, but we're going to celebrate Easter a little bit here tonight. Why seek the living among the dead? Now, I want you to turn with me to the 20th chapter of the Gospel of John. 20, John 20. And I want to read verses uh, 1 through 10 or... Right, 1 through 10. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken from the tomb. So she ran and came to Simon Peter and to other disciples, whom, to the other disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, said to them, They've taken the way of the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they've laid him. Peter therefore went forth and the other disciple, and they were going to the tomb. And the two men, and the two were running together, and the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. I want you to put a pause button there. By the way, I... Uh, uh, hold, hold my place just a minute. About 50 people came up to me this week and said, Now you started that parable about that apple and tree and pear tree and you didn't finish it. You said you put it on pause and you never go back and, and hit the play button again. Well I'm sorry y'all didn't get that, you know. <laughs> I, I thought I finished it. <laughs> but but uh, we'll get together uh, at another time in another place and I'll you got it in you Joe? Good. Marsha Parr didn't get Marsha Smith Parr didn't get it. All right. Now, back, back, to, back to John 20. I hope she's watching. I, wa I want you to assemble tonight as in a courtroom. And I want us to decide a verdict. Is the resurrection a miracle or a myth? We, we, you're going to be the jury. And we're going to hold court here tonight to decide is the resurrection a miracle or a myth? We have a defendant, and the defendant is a 33-year-old Galilean who, from the age of 30 to the age of 33, was this itinerant uh, preacher. 30 years as a carpenter, 3 years as an itinerant preacher. Tried six times, found, declared guilty of treason and blasphemy, given the death penalty. Now, there are two issues we need to decide here. You're, you're the jury. The first has to do with his death. Did he actually die? And the second has to do with his resurrection. If he actually died, did he actually raise, rise from the dead? Was he raised from the dead? Now the prosecution has some theories. They have a theory concerning his death. It's called the swoon theory. And we'll hear from the prosecution. The prosecution says Jesus really didn't die. There is a prominent theory that goes back to about the third century that Jesus actually just swooned. It's called the swoon theory. That he actually fainted on the cross to the burden of that suffering of that pain. 
And that when he was taken down from the cross and placed in the cool tomb, in the tomb he revived and slipped away. That's the theory concerning his death. There are some theories the prosecution would have concerning his resurrection. If he actually died, then what happened to him? The prosecution has two theories. One theory is, is that somebody came and stole his body, that they slipped in under the cover of night, went inside the tomb and took the body of Jesus away and took it out, perhaps his enemies, perhaps his friends. The second theory is called the hallucination theory. It's, it's this, that, that these women, under their grief and sorrow in the early morning, went to the wrong tomb. And they just thought they saw, you know, um, Jesus. She, they thought she, she thought she saw him. And like the rattling of a window, they just thought they heard him speak. That oftentimes, people who are in deep grief and deep sorrow have uh, hallucinations. And the people that are looking for ghosts, and it's that time of the year, the people who are looking for ghosts usually see them. Those are the two theories. Toynbee, Toynbee says... Well, if they stole his body, why didn't they present it? Present the body of Jesus, and Christianity crumbles. Now, the defense, the prosecution rests, so the defense now has its say. The defense presents five attorneys concerning the death of Jesus. They are Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and the Apostle Paul. Matthew says, quote, Jesus cried with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Mark said, Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. Luke says, And Jesus crying out with a loud voice said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. And John said, When Jesus therefore had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished, bowed his head, gave up his spirit. And the Apostle Paul said, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture. He actually did die. Now the prosecution might contend, well, what we need are witnesses, not some biased attorneys. You got any witnesses? And the defense presents four witnesses. The first is found in the 15th chapter of the book of Mark, the centurion. Now the centurion was the head official at the, at, the, at the crucifixion of Jesus. He was a man in command of a hundred troops. He was an experienced soldier. He, had, he was skilled in the art of killing. He was an aggressive, clear-thinking Roman soldier who, made, who did not make rash decisions. He said... Surely this was the Son of God. And that word was there is in the imperfect tense, and it means this person no longer exists. This person no longer is. He was dead. He was the Son of God. The second uh, witness for the defense, the soldiers. Now these men were responsible for breaking the legs of the men who were hanging on the cross. It was really an act of mercy. 
As some of you have heard before, when um, in, in crucifixion, when they hung them on the cross, they would allow them to, um, to thrust themselves upward on the nail that went through their feet. That's, why they, that's the way they got their breath. And as they would, the, uh, the body would sag on the cross to get their next breath, they would thrust themselves upward on the, cross, on the nail itself to get their next breath. And so in order to, um, to speed up their death, these soldiers would come by with mallets and they would break their legs so they couldn't thrust themselves up to get their next breath. And when they came to the body of Jesus, they didn't break his legs. Now in the 19th chapter of the book of John, it describes that. And when they came to him, they did not find it necessary to break his legs because he had already suffocated to death. And so they took a sword and they thrust it into his side and out from that wound came blood and water mixed, some, uh, suggesting that his heart had ruptured. The third and fourth witnesses for the defense are Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. And they came and they claimed the body of Jesus and they took that body and they were wrapping it in cloths. Now it was mummy-like. They started under the arms and they wrapped it all the way down to the feet. And they covered it with a paste of aloes, heavy paste. Some suggest that when that paste was placed on the body, it would weigh as much as 25 pounds. And then they took a napkin-like, like a woman would wear a scarf, and they put it over their head, the body, the head, the head of the body, and they would tie it under their chin tightly like a woman's scarf so that when death came, the, the, the jaw would not drop and, 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 and look grotesque. It would hold the jaw up. And so while Joseph and, and Nicodemus were preparing this body, they were handling the body and even touching the face. And they saw that he was dead. He was dead, was our Lord. But when they came, in the early morning hours, to, to, to the tomb, they found it empty. How did he get out? That's, the defense would, has its argument, how he got out. Now there are two or three possibilities. One possibility is that he left in his own strength doesn't seem too logical that a man who had been beaten all night with a cat of nine tails and then forced to carry his own cross out to Golgotha and then nailed to that cross and, 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 and the condition he was in, if he weren't dead, how he could roll a stone uphill that weighed some suggested, have suggested as much as a ton how one man could do that, slip out under his own energy, under his own strength and power. The second theory, possibility, how did he get out, was that he, he was taken away by human hands. He was either taken out of the grave by his enemies if that were the case, why did his enemies not present his body? 
or he was taken out of the, of the tomb by his friends, if that were the case, how does it explain the moral transformation of these men after the resurrection? For not a single one of them expected him to rise, to rise from the dead. They came to the cross expecting to find his body there. And this little group of men, after his crucifixion, went away cowed and defeated and discouraged and despondent. How does it explain the fact that these men become bold as lions willing to risk their life? Well, that leads us to the third possibility. He was supernaturally raised from the dead and that he walked out through the stone and not through the open door of the tomb. Now I want you to look back at the text of chapter 20 of the book of John. Let me show you something. It says, verse 5, now Peter's coming, they're running to the tomb. It says, verse 5, and, and stooping and looking in, he saw, I want you to take a pencil and circle that word, saw. And the, that the Greek word there for saw is the word blepo. It means to glance at something, to see at a glance. It's what I just saw, I've just seen some of you doing with your watch, you know, glancing at it. Wondering if you set your clock back two hours rather than one. It's, a, it's, 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 it's glancing at something. He saw. Peter looked in and he glanced and saw. Look at the next verse. Simon Peter therefore also came following him. That's John did that in verse 5. Peter came also following him, entered the tomb, and he saw the linen, linen wrappings lying there. It's beheld in the New American Standard. That Greek word is theru, T-H-E-O-R-O-O, translated saw, but different kind of saw, different kind of seeing. It's a word that means that he looked intently upon it. He investigated it. He observed it. He, he stared at it. Now, John comes running in and he glances to see the tomb is empty, but Peter comes running in and he sees this linen wrapping there. It's not out of place. It's, it's like someone just came out of it and it's lying just as though there were a body in it. And he stared at it. He observed it. He looked intently at it. Next verse. Verse 8. So the other disciple who had first come into the tomb entered then also, and he saw and believed. Third, there's three words translated, Greek words translated saw. This word in the Greek is oida, and it means to see with understanding, perception. It's like that algebra class you're in. And that teacher's been up there on the board all semester, you know, showing those algebra equations, and you haven't been getting it. You've been looking at it. First, first you glanced at it, and then you've been staring at it for a couple of weeks, trying to figure it out. And one day when she comes in and puts the algebra equation on the board, all of a sudden lights come on and things click. And you say, you shout, I see it now. What you, you, you've seen it all along, but now you understand it. Now it clicks. Now the lights come on. Now you really grasp it. And that's what happened when John came into the tomb and saw that. All of a sudden, bells begin to ring.
rolled away so we could look inside. So that we could see that what this scripture is about, nothing is impossible with God comes to pass. Now, I want you to turn quickly to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Let's hear from the Apostle Paul about this. Now I make known to you, brethren, this gospel which I preach to you, which also you receive, which also you stand by, which also you're saved if you hold fast the word which I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died, that's a fact, for our sins, according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, that's the proof of His death. And that he was raised on the day according to the scriptures. That's the fact. And he appeared to Cephas. That's the proof. There is the fact and the proof. He appeared to Peter, then to twelve. He appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now. Most of them, he said, are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and to all the apostles. And last of all, as it were, to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. We've seen Him. We've not just glanced at Him. We've not just uh, uh, observed and investigated Him. We have understood that this Jesus who was crucified is alive and the firstborn of the dead. Now, let me hurry to, to, to look at those two alternatives at the back of your worksheet. We have two alternatives. One is, is that we can reject Him. If we reject the reality of this, then you need to find some kind of explanation for the body of Jesus, what happened to it. Or we can accept Him. And if we accept this is true, and by the way, the Christian faith rises or falls, it succeeds or fails on the basis of the resurrection. I must say to you that there's sometimes when I, I get feelings of doubt. I guess everybody does. Is this really true? And I go back to this one great historical event that Jesus came out of the grave alive. And my faith and your faith rests upon that historical event. And if that is true, we can stake all our eternity on Jesus. Now, there are two or three things if, it were not, if it's not true. Number one, then your faith is in vain. We might as well go home. It's over. If it is not true, then you are yet in your sins, you have not been forgiven. If it is not true, then everybody who has died, your loved ones who have died, are, have perished. But if it is true, then that means that He has conquered everything that has conquered us. I'm not, the, I'm not a nuclear scientist. I'm not the smartest person in the world, but I know how the Final Four basketball, NCAA basketball tournament works. The way that works is, is that you put all these teams together and you play this tournament and you, everybody has to win to move on in the tournament. And finally, when it gets down to the Final Four, you play two games and then... The two teams that won, they play each other, and the team that wins that game is the national champion because he's beating everybody that's beating everybody else. 
There is one man's last enemy is death, and there is one man who has conquered death. And that means that if he has conquered death, he's conquered everything that has conquered us. There's not a thing in your life you will ever experience that he has not conquered. If he's conquered death, that means that he's present in power in this world. Maysfield's marvelous play, and I've referred to it before, The Trial of Jesus. He has this, he has this imaginary conversation go on between the, the, wife, of Herod, uh, the wife of Pilate, who's, who, he, who he names Procula, and the Roman centurion, who, whom, he, whom he names Polonius. And Procula says to Polonius, What about that man you crucified today? Oh, he says, he's the most kind and gentle man I've ever known. Then why did you put him to death? What sin did he do? Did he do? He, there, no sin, ma'am. No sin. He died for the sin of the world. Do you think he's still dead? No, ma'am, I don't think he's still dead. Well, where is he then, Polonius? Where is he? He's loose in the world, he said. And no Jew or Gentile can stop him now. I love it. If he was raised from the dead, he's loose in the world. And he's present with us tonight. The healing of his seamless dress is by our beds of pain. We, we touch him in the throng and press and we are whole again. E. Stanley Jones said the disciples, the disciples did not merely call him back to their memory. They communed with him in the deeps. He was not a mere fair and beautiful story to be remembered with gratitude. He was a living, redemptive, actual presence then and there. He's loose in the world. And if Jesus came out of that tomb, then He must be here with us, as alive now as He was then. And if He was raised from the dead, it means that the ultimate triumph of right over wrong and good over evil, Easter story is, is that God cannot be defeated. This is my Father's world. Oh, let me ne'er forget that though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. And if He was raised from the dead, we will be raised from the dead. And every time I turn away from those um, tombs out there in Highland Cemetery or wherever I am, I just think that one of these days God's going to raise them all up, bodies all. And this is the way Philip Keller, who, 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 that great author who wrote that, you know, that, the Shepherd's Psalm, let me tell you what he puts, how he puts it, and then we're through. His little frightened followers met in little groups. Over and over they relived and recounted to each other those dramatic accounts of the preceding week. Each had witnessed the final drama from a different perspective. So they sat tears, deeply mourning, telling each other tales of grief. The Master had met an ignominious end. For them there was no future. It was back to the old life, back to the boat for Peter and his pals. What none of them knew was the titanic triumph taking place beyond the narrow horizons of their little selves. Pictured inside that grave, they could not see much beyond their tears. They were so 
preoccupied with their own pain and problems. They could not gasp what happened at the grave. They were sunk down in sadness. The events of that weekend rival in madness and and majestic mystery those stupendous changes which took place at Calvary. They were beyond human capacity to fully comprehend. It was God moving in enormous power, yet without public fanfare or display. It was God achieving His purpose, overwhelming every force set against Him, yet unwitnessed and unheralded except by angelic host, quickened, enlivened, energized by God the Father, God the Spirit, and God the Son Himself. He simply cast off the restrictions surrounding Him. He was alive in a radical dimension of supernatural living. Instantaneously. No man's hands unwrapped those heavy wraps around Him. No man's hands unwrapped those bonds about His face. No one loosed Him, let Him go, rolled the great stone away, or broke the seal upon the stone, or struck the guards to the ground. Outside this was... Only and all the work of God down in that tomb. Life returned, and there was no one to see it. It was at night. He came through the stone, resurrected, and no one applauded. The applause must come from us. And the applause that comes from us is the commitment of our life. Why seek the living among the dead? We're here to celebrate life. Let's pray. Our Father, it's an exciting event to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus wherever and whenever we do it. And in our hearts we salute and applaud and rejoice and praise the God of Jesus Christ. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, alive and ever present. Conqueror and more than conqueror. To Him we owe our life and our eternity. To Him we surrender our sin, our wills our ways, our purposes, our plans. To Him we give our absolute worship and allegiance. Through Him we pray. Amen. Now, I wonder tonight, is there one who would like to come, bow his knee, bow her knee to Jesus Christ? Very God of very God, alive and present. Is there one tonight who would come and do that? Come tonight to commit his life, her life to this, this Christ, to his church. Total commitment, one's life to him. While we stand to sing, we invite you to come.